The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Creator God, we're thankful to um, worship you with a group of people who you have sought and redeemed. And Lord, we arrive here this morning just in a lot of different places with you. So many of us have so many different things going on, um, whether it's with our family or our work, um, in our marriages, with our children. God, just we arrive an anxiety-ridden people. But we also know, Lord, that we want to be a part of the big thing that you are doing in the world. And so would you give us eyes to see how we can be your ambassadors? Um, to show up in the places where you would have us to show up and to speak words of grace that you would have us speak. Lord, that we would walk through um, our world with a grace and with a deep security that we have been redeemed by you, that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by being your people. And God, would you show us how to engage the world around us? And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And I ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, So I don't know if there are places that you have determined over the course of your life that you would like to visit or that you would never visit. Like, I don't have a list of places that I would like to visit. Like every now and then I see something, I say, well, that's kind of cool. But I definitely have a list of places that I would never want to visit or never want to live. And at the top of that list of places that I don't want to live and I don't even want to visit is Arkansas. (laughs) And so I grew up in Mississippi and like that's Arkansas culturally adjacent, so I feel like I have done that, like I have seen this movie before. But I had this weird set of events happen over the course of the last uh, five or six years where two of my closest friends in the world have moved from Texas to Arkansas. And as they were going, I knew it was a really good move for them. One of them um, is a pastor and the other is a professor. And as they were packing up and moving to Arkansas, after I cried and asked them why they would want to do that to humanity, I said to them both, um, that's really great. Um, I will never come visit you. <laughs> and I know like some of you might be, from, might be from Arkansas and that's really offensive. And I just want to point out to you that neither one of us is in Arkansas right now. We've made our decision. <laughs> But I have, out of the goodness that is stored up in my heart, gone to visit both of them in Arkansas in the last five years. And I got out as quickly as I could. Um, So four or five weeks ago, um, I was in Arkansas. My friend who is a pastor there, they're working on some things in their church, says, I want you to come up and uh, teach one weekend. And over about the course of that same five to seven years, um, there are two pieces of content that churches and conferences typically ask me to come and give. If they ask for something unique or special, 
um, this is what they want me to do. And one of them is called Healing of the Nations. I think it's chapter three in the book that came out a couple of years ago. And the other one is one I wrote right after the book came out uh, called A Thousand Pianos. And my poor children have had to travel with me all over the United States and have heard me give Healing of the Nations and A Thousand Pianos like a million times to the point like Malia, my oldest daughter, just has like notes of it on her phone. She can give it if she's ever called upon. Like if I ever like fall over dead, she's like, I can do Healing of the Nations. Um, and so they just told me a little bit ago, like, you know what, you just, you just put those all like, uh, you just need to make a greatest hits album and be done. Like just retire all of that. And I said that, that those, those two talks have paid for a lot of vacations. You want to settle down about all of that. So I was in Arkansas and my friend Jonathan said, well, I would really like, I think we would really be uh, blessed if you could come and deliver the content from a thousand pianos and both healing of the nations and thousand pianos kind of have have at the heart of them a lot of the same message um, they are both about how to deal with difference in our world racial differences political differences um, ethnic differences socioeconomic differences and, and what i'm trying to get at with both of those is how do we become the kind of people who know the differences between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference But what's fascinating about those is what most people hear when I deliver that content is they hear the part about the racial differences. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was in Arkansas and after the first worship gathering, I had this response to that content that I'd never had before. And people usually respond pretty positively, but this time uh, there was a super long line of people waiting to see me. Um, and as people came up, they would hand me notes, and some of them had tears in their eyes. And, and what they wanted to talk about a lot was the racial component. And it dawned on me as I'm visiting with all of these people after their first worship gathering about what weekend it was. Because it wasn't just any weekend, but this weekend landed on the anniversary of the Supreme Court's Brown versus the Board of Education decision which declared segregated schools to be unconstitutional. And I wasn't just in Arkansas, I was in Little Rock, where the, the Supreme Court decision in 1957 was enforced at Little Rock Central High School in 1958-59. Matter of fact, we drove by Little Rock Central High School and it is absolutely enormous. I'm one of the biggest high schools I've ever seen. And that was before people started building high schools primarily for football like we do in Texas. <laughs> when Little Rock Central was built, it was the most expensive high school in the United States. But after the situation at Little Rock, um, the city became so undesirable uh, that it's barely been full of students. Right, right now it serves as both a functioning high school and a museum. And so some of you might remember from history class and some of you remember from actually being alive when it happened, that the governor of Arkansas brought in the National Guard to keep nine students from enrolling, nine black students from enrolling in Central High School. And then the president of the United States federalized those troops so that nine African-American students would be admitted into Central High School. And it was one of the flashpoints of the civil rights movement. And the city of Little Rock 
was so set against these nine students being granted admission into Little Rock Central High School that they actually canceled school for everybody for the entire year. So one of the women that I met that weekend was this woman, Carolyn. And Carolyn comes to me and she says, Sean, I want you to know I'm a member of the lost class of Little Rock High School. She was a senior that year. And she didn't get to graduate. She didn't get to walk. She just kind of moved on to college. But as amazing as her story was, it wasn't the most poignant that I heard while I was in Little Rock. Because right after her, I met an older white man who said, I remember those days. And I was a teenager in South Carolina. And my dad and the members of our church decided that if a black family showed up at church, they were to be directed to the black church down the street. And if they showed up during worship, we had already begun, our preacher was supposed to get up and stop worship and dismiss everybody. And that really bothered him. And so he said he went home that afternoon after learning that, and he asked his mom, he said, didn't you and the rest of the people at our church, like, didn't you teach me that Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white? And then he told me his mom said, son, if a black family shows up at our church, they're only there to stir up trouble. He said that's when he made a determination that as soon as he could, he was going to leave and never come back. And that's what he did just a couple of months later. And so because I've had the opportunity to write and to speak a lot about race in a lot of different places over the last five or six years. I understand that I hear more stories than the average person hears about that. But what shocks me about all of the stories that I hear is that I'm still hearing stories about that. Because there's a part of me that imagines that if I were to run into Jesus or the Apostle Paul, like, standing around on the street corner or walking through the mall one day, they might say, are you guys still talking about this? Because this issue, this issue of knowing the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference, this issue is at the heart of the New Testament. It is what almost every New Testament letter is about, especially the letters of Paul. It comes up over and over and over again. The first issue in the church, the most controversial issue in the church was the church and who gets to be in the church. And I know that for a lot of reasons, many of us have never heard that before, but once you know that that's the overarching issue that's happening in the New Testament, the New Testament will begin to make a whole lot more sense to you because that's what they're talking about all the time. And it is this controversy between Jews who have always been God's people, who have been God's people since Abraham, and that has been their claim coming to Jesus Christ, but at the same time, Gentiles who have not been God's people coming to Jesus Christ. 
Christ. And this is the controversy that the first century church was negotiating the whole time. Their first issue, or how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to live and worship together? Because the Jews have a way of doing things and they've always been God's people and they are not sure that they want to live and worship alongside all of these Gentiles with all of their nasty Gentile habits. And then you have these Gentiles who have been looked down on by the Jews and been excluded from Judaism and the practices of Judaism. But now they are coming to Christ. And how Jewish do they need to be in order to become Christians? It's the central issue of the first century church. It's what they are negotiating over and over and over again. And the truth is, as progressive as we sometimes think we are, and as thoughtful as we sometimes think we are, 2,000 years later, we are not any better at negotiating the issues of difference than they were because we still have the same story. How do we live and worship alongside of people who are very different than us? And dealing with differences is difficult. And the reason it's difficult is because you're you and I'm me. And what we don't say out loud What we wouldn't say in Bible study or in our small group is that we all have a not-so-hidden-but-we-believe-secret belief about the nature of the world, and that belief is that the world would be a whole lot better if everybody else were just more like me. If people thought like me, spent their money like me, valued the things that I valued, if we shared the same core morals and sensibilities, the world would be a whole lot better. Because let me tell you what you did when you walked into this room today. And it's the same thing that you have done when you walked into every room that you've ever walked into. It's the same thing that you've done when you've started a new fitness class with a group of people. It's the same thing you've done when you started a new job, when you decided where you wanted to live, what school you were gonna send your kids to. You walked into the room and you scanned the room to identify the people who intuitively felt to you who were most like you. It's what sociologists call, we are all what sociologists call cognitive misers. And what that means is life is really hard and you have a lot to negotiate and take care of in life. And so whenever your brain can take a break, it wants to. And that's one of the areas where we do it the most and the easiest. Because knowing and loving and living alongside and worshiping alongside people who are different than you is really challenging and your brain doesn't want to do it. We're all cognitive misers. And that's why 2,000 years later, we are still hearing the same story. Because if we don't learn to push back against our nature, we will do what comes naturally 
even though it's not holy. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last five weeks, you know that we have been in a series on the Celtic, Celtic way of evangelism. I call it the Celtic way of evangelism because everything comes back to basketball for me. <laughs> and so you have heard the story of St. Patrick. And St. Patrick, who is credited um, with evangelizing Ireland, was kidnapped from England as a teenager, shipped off to Ireland and worked there, served there as a slave until he escaped, made his way back to England, and then with a group of people when he was 44 years old, went back to Ireland to evangelize. And what's amazing about the Celtic way of evangelism is that Patrick and his friends decided to evangelize in a completely different way than the Roman wing of the church evangelized. Because at that time in history, the Roman wing of the church had become um, enamored with power and wealth and prestige and status. And they had determined that they were the people in the world who were the smartest and the most sophisticated and that everybody else was less smart and less sophisticated. And when you come to a position in life where you believe that you are smarter than other people or more sophisticated than other people, the simple everyday 50 cent word for that is superiority. And so the Roman wing of the church actually believed that there were some people who were unreachable with the gospel. They weren't even going to try. So they created two prerequisites, two things that you had to do to be reachable with the gospel. The first had to do with language. You had to speak Latin. And if you didn't speak Latin, they weren't gonna worry about you. So that's one of the prerequisites. We're all gonna share the same language. And the second was that you had to be literate. So literacy, you had to be able to read. And there's a level, if you're just thinking in terms of practicality, where that makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you have a shared language, it's a whole lot easier to share a message with other people. You know what I mean when I say what I'm saying, and I know what you mean, and we're really clear about our language. And even though, even in the same language, it gets kind of sticky sometimes, and you have to go back and say, oh, that's not what I meant. When it comes down to sharing a language, it makes it a lot easier to spread a message. And it's even easier than that if people are literate, because not only can people hear the message, but you can pass it on, you can write it down, and then they can pass it on to other people. And so there's one level where it seems like this would be the very natural thing to do, the easy thing to do, is we, it's gonna be harder to reach people if we have to learn a different language or if they have to learn our language. It's gonna be harder to reach people if they can't read. It sounds practical until you start thinking about who it is that doesn't speak Latin and isn't literate. People living in African countries, people in the Far East, the poor, other people that they had predetermined weren't worth educating, like women, people from underdeveloped nations. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that St. Patrick stood out in returning to Ireland is that the Roman wing of the church actually called people living in Ireland barbarians. And that was their prerequisite. You had to speak Latin and be able to read. 
And before we get really puffed up and judgmental about the Roman wing of the church and their prerequisites to sharing Jesus with people, my guess is that most of us at some point in time have done the same thing. That we thought, oh, you ought to, you should first, And so as we think about all of the people that God just puts in our path, whether they're in our family or our friend group, people that we work alongside, the question for us is what do you think someone else should become before they become a Christian? Like what are your functioning prerequisites? So my friend Brian was an English professor for a long time. And he said, Where he taught school was large liberal arts school, just like most large liberal arts school. There was this kind of common grounds where people gathered, a little quad. And every day there was a guy standing in one section of the quad, literally on a soapbox with a bullhorn, shouting with people about Jesus. And he was shouting all of the things that you can imagine that someone standing on a soapbox with a bullhorn would be shouting about Jesus. Like how everybody was bad and going to hell. And if you didn't believe exactly like he believed, you were damned forever. And so Brian talked to him and said, do you think that that's really an effective way to do that? And the guy would say, well, this is my message. I feel called to do this. But Brian goes on sabbatical for a semester. And when he comes back, he notices that the same guy on the same soapbox with the same bullhorn, but he's got a different message. He's not shouting at everybody about Jesus. Now he's shouting about Republican politics and how everybody should become a Republican and how Democrats were bad and laying out policy for everyone. So Brian goes and talks to him and says, hey, you know, just a few months ago, I was here and you were shouting about Jesus. And now you're shouting about Republican politics. What changed? And the guy told him, well, um, we realized that if we could get people to become Republicans first, it was a lot easier to get them to become Christians. So what do you believe somebody ought to become first? And this is not a new question. This has been the question since the time that the church lifted off the ground. The first controversy of the church, or how how do we handle these differences? And so Luke, who is a chronicler of Jesus, talks about this in Acts 15. So in Acts 15, once, in fact, Acts 15, one, he begins this way. He says, "When certain Judeans came with this teaching." Unless you are circumcised according to Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. So there are certain Judeans who are saying, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. So what's happened is that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and other apostles have been going around and they've been starting churches. They've been sharing the message of Jesus and they're talking about grace and coming to Jesus. And as soon as they leave a town, there are some Jewish Christians who come in and they say, hey, um, Um, Paul and Barnabas, 
Didn't give you the whole story. So, um, gentlemen, if you want to be a Christian, there's going to be a little um, procedure. Uh, don't worry about anesthesia or anything like that. We know how to do this. We've been doing it for a long time. You go down to the rabbi. He's got two sharp rocks. He rubs them together. They get really high. It's, it's fine. But you cannot be saved unless you keep the whole the Mosaic law. And I don't want to be really careful here because what some of us have heard through the years is that the first century Jews thought that they were saved by keeping the law. And that's not what they believed at all. What they believed was that keeping the law demonstrated that they were saved, demonstrated that they were God's people. It set them apart. It's that, you know, if you just want to read a whole lot about covenantal gnomism, you just go ahead, or you could just trust me. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas argued against this teaching and debated with the Judeans vehemently. So the church selected several people, including Paul and Barnabas, to travel to Jerusalem to dialogue about this issue with the apostles and the elders there. The church sent them on their way. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, stopping to report to the groups of believers there that outsiders were now being converted. So they're on their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas and this little group going down to have this meeting. And so they're stopping at these towns along the way and they're reporting because they're on a little PR campaign. They want to get as much behind them as possible, as much support as they can. And they're letting people know what God's done behind, what God's done where they've been. Luke says, this brought great joy to them all. And why wouldn't it? What kind of person would you have to be to hear stories of people coming to God and not be filled with joy, to not have great joy. What kind of priorities would you have to have to hear that when people were coming to God and you wouldn't be joyful? What kind of values would you have to hold to hear that and not receive that with joy? What kind of person would you have to be for someone to tell you that other people who have been away from God are coming to God and you not receive that with joy? Upon arrival in Jerusalem, Luke says, the church, the apostles, and the elders welcomed them warmly, and they reported all they had seen God do. But there were some believers present who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. They stood up and asserted, no, this is not acceptable. These people must be circumcised and we must require them to keep the whole Mosaic law. Okay, so they get down to the meeting and Paul and Barnabas report, and then some Pharisees get up. And you, you remember the Pharisees from the gospel. They're the ones who are always questioning Jesus, trying to trap Jesus. Well, after the resurrection, some of them come to believe that Jesus actually is Lord. He is the promised Messiah of God. And so they become Christians. But that doesn't keep them from being Pharisees and believing a lot of the things that they've always believed. And they think, 
what some of us might think would be a perfectly reasonable and natural thing to think, that if you are going to follow the king of the Jews, then you need to be a Jew and practice as a Jew. They got to keep the whole law. So Paul, Barnabas, what you guys need to do is you need to go back to all these little churches that you've planted and all the people that you've talked to, and you need to tell them that they need to keep the law. They need to be circumcised. Paul, Barnabas, what you need to tell them is they need to practice religion and faith the way we practice religion and faith. They need to value what we value. They need to love what we love, hate what we hate. They need to have the same enemies that we have. And once they've done that, then they can come and follow Jesus. And it's easy to be judgmental about Pharisees. But my guess is that if you have been a follower of Jesus for more than like five minutes, you have done this to somebody. Well, I don't think a real Christian would dress like that. And I don't think a real Christian would vote like that or support that. I don't think a real Christian would make that much money. I don't think a real Christian would make that little money. It's almost reflexive because the world would be a better place if more people were like me. So the Pharisees have had their say. And this is what Luke tells us happens next. He says, the apostles and elders met privately to discuss how the issue should be resolved. There was a lot of debate. And finally, Peter stood up. Now, you remember Peter? Peter shows up in the Gospels a lot. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he's always flubbing things up. He's always getting it wrong. He's always saying the, the wrong thing. But when you read the book of Acts, you will notice, like, after Peter is reconciled to Jesus, Peter becomes the spokesperson for the church. He delivers that great sermon in Acts 2 on Pentecost Sunday. He is the central character for the first part of Acts. And so it's natural. This is a leader in the church for Peter to stand up to respond to the Pharisees. And this is what Peter says. He says, my brothers, you all know that in the early days of our movement, God decided that I should be the one through whom the first outsiders would hear the good news and become believers. God knows the human heart, and he showed approval of their hearts by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did for us. In cleansing their hearts by faith, God has made no distinction between them and us. God has made no distinction, which is actually pretty remarkable because Peter just learned this for himself like five chapters ago. Peter gets a vision from God. God says, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. Problem is Cornelius is a Gentile, and Peter has all these visions of food, and Peter doesn't want to go, and God keeps prodding him and prodding him and prodding him. He finally ends up going, and he has this remarkable experience at Cornelius' house. 
And it's then, after that experience with Cornelius, that Peter says, oh, now I see. God shows no favoritism. God shows no favoritism. Which for some of us is the worst news we've heard today. Because we really like being God's favorite. Well, didn't you see, God, that I went to the thing when we were supposed to go to the thing? And then they asked for the money and I gave the money and I did that. Remember when I was in high school and everybody else was doing that other thing and I didn't do that thing? And there was college, there was that girl that I dated, there was that guy that I dated, and I really wanted to do this and they did. And I, I'm your favorite, right? I did all the stuff. That seems really unfair that God shows no favoritism, that God has made no distinction between them and us. That's no way to run the world, God. Because if I don't know who them is, then I don't know who us is. And if there is no them, how do I know that us is us? Because we all want to belong so badly. Our longing for belonging is so deep that we have to have a them so we can have an us. But Peter says, what if we've gotten this wrong? Because what we have seen, what I've seen, what Paul's seen, what Barnabas has seen, we're not showing up here with a theory. Here's what we've seen. We've been around people who aren't doing all of our stuff, and they have the Holy Spirit. And what if we made our judgments? Not on whether or not everyone is doing all of our stuff, but demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Peter goes on, so it makes sense, he says. It makes no sense to me that some of you are testing God by burdening his disciples with a load that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to carry. Now, we all believe that we will be liberated through the grace of the Lord Jesus. They also will be rescued the same way. There was silence among them while Barnabas and Paul reported all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among outsiders. So Paul and Barnabas have already given a report. And there's still more to say. And so what if it really isn't about us and them? What if it's about the Holy Spirit being active in the lives of other people. And when we decide that someone else has to become something else first, 
we are not only burdening them, but we are testing God. Well, everybody listens to that. I imagine if I'm sitting in the room, I whisper to the guy sitting next to me, isn't that Peter? Well, didn't he mess up everything all the time? And like he's been gone and he's out there working with the Gentiles. And so um, he's, he's got his jobs resting on this. And he's been wrong a lot. I don't know that we should listen to Peter at all. But then someone else stands up to talk. And it's a man named James. And James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And the best we can tell the Jerusalem church was all Jewish. And this is the same James that later writes the book of James that's in the scriptures. But it's also the same James who was the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine being the brother of Jesus? Why can't you be more like your brother? James has got nothing riding on this. He's a pastor of a church. He's not a missionary. And his church is all Jewish, doing all the Mosaic law as they had always done. They're meeting in his home turf. And this is what James says. He says, my brothers, hear me. Simon Peter reminded us how God first included outsiders in his favor, taking people from among them for his name. This resonates with the words of the prophets. After this, I will return and rebuild the house of David, which has fallen into ruins. From its wreckage, I will rebuild it. So all the nations, nations, the Greek word is ethnos. It's the word we get ethnicities from. So all the nations may seek the eternal one, including every person among the outsiders who has been called by my name. This is the word of the Lord who has been revealing these things since ancient times. So here's my counsel. We should not burden these outsiders who are turning to God. We should instead write a letter instructing them to abstain from four things. First, things associated with idol worship. Second, sexual immorality. Third, food killed by strangling. And fourth, blood. The implication is the blood from the strangling. My reason for these four exceptions is that in every city there are Jewish communities where, for generations, the laws of Moses have been proclaimed, and on every Sabbath, Moses is read in synagogues everywhere. So James gets up and he says, um, you guys haven't been reading your Bible because this has been in there the whole time. So here's my suggestion. Let's not burden other people with our stuff. These practices are from God, but for us. And let's just ask them to, ref to abstain from four things. Here's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna worship idols. There is one God, and we believe 
that in this world where there are so many people who say there are so many gods, that our God has been vindicated by Jesus rising from the dead. Two, we're going to abstain from sexual immorality. James, would you like to go into more detail about No. And these last two, strangulation and blood, well, you could spend a good part of the rest of your life getting underneath everything that James means by that. But at the very top level, the surface level, is that there are places where the law of Moses has been read and people follow the law of Moses. What we're going to ask you to do um, is don't be a jerk in your religious practice. There are things that are offensive to people. Don't be offensive. And if you didn't know they're offensive, now you know they're offensive. And that's all we're going to do. Because we're going to trust the Spirit. And all of those things that I'm worried about and that you're worried about, what if people do this, what if people say that, but they're over there doing that, we're going to trust the Spirit to do all the convicting, the teaching, the leading, that the fruit of the Spirit are active and in play because we don't want people to be burdened by something that should be beautiful. That when you hear a story of someone coming to Jesus, that you would be filled with joy. So there are a lot of letters in the New Testament. And they're responding to issues going on in church or sent to encourage people. And unfortunately, what we get is one side of the conversation most of the time, and the letters are sent out. We really don't know very much about what happens to them after that. Um, they just go. But this letter... We know what happens with this letter. And Luke tells us at the end of chapter 15, he says, so the men were sent to Antioch. When they arrived, they gathered the community together and read the letter. The community rejoiced at the resolution to the controversy. I know some of us believe, and maybe we were raised with it, um, that our faith, that faith in Jesus is something like Olympic figure skating where there are extra points for degrees of difficulty. <laughs> but that's not what the early church decided. There are two sides of this equation. For people who are coming who are seeking God at whatever level they seek it, at whatever time they seek it, at whatever pace they seek it. Those people, for as much as it is in our power, should be unburdened. And we should receive them with joy. So this is my prayer for us, Ecclesia. That for whoever God brings into your path, whether a family member, a friend, 
a business acquaintance, that you would be a voice of grace and healing with no prerequisites and just live into an expectation that one day, through the power of God's Spirit, you will receive them with joy. Let me pray for you. God, give us eyes to see your spirit at work in the world. And our friends, our neighbors, um, in the least likely places. And God, we would ask that you would make us the kind of people um, who push past the very natural and expected response to seek a world that is more and more like us, but to create along with you a world that more and more reflects you. And we ask for this power because it is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and that redeems us and gives us new life every day. And we ask for these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.